So as you can uh, see by the graphic behind me, we are continuing our series that we've been doing for a couple of years now, Learning to Love God's Word. We're working our way through the Bible and uh, through each book of the Bible, kind of asking the question of, um, why is this here? What, what, what goodness is God extending to us through this part of His Word in a special way that may not be extended in exactly the same way in other parts of Scripture. So today we're focusing on how how can we know if our faith is healthy and whole? That's one of the themes of 1 Timothy. Uh, We've been working our way through Paul's letters, the letters of the Apostle Paul, and uh, we find ourselves coming to the last four of his letters over the next few weeks. So 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, often known together, those three, as the pastoral epistles. And then the very last one, the shortest of all, is the book of Philemon. We'll get to it in a few weeks. Uh, So today we're focusing on 1 Timothy. It's a book written to a man much younger than the Apostle Paul, one of his co-workers. The early verses address Timothy as, as Paul's son in the faith, a deep relationship Timothy now is becoming a leader in the city of Ephesus, and uh, that's near the modern-day city of Izmir in Turkey, and uh, he's responsible for the the health and the well-being, the wholeness, not just of one congregation, but many, and Paul is passing the baton to him, saying, here's what it would look like for you to be healthy and whole and to lead churches that are healthy and whole. And whole. So today, that's what we'll hear in our scripture reading. A sampling of this theme from First Timothy. Uh, scripture reading will come from chapter six. If I remember to uh, turn this on, the scripture reading will come from chapter six. There we go. Today's scripture lesson comes from Timothy chapter six, verses two through twelve. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and pray. Lord God, it would be easy for us to sit here, wherever here is, in this room, in another place, 
It would be easy for us to sit here and think that these are just words and that they won't do any good and they won't change anything. And it would be easy for us to think that our duty right now as good little Christian boys and girls, men and women, is to sit here and let the words roll over us for a while so that we can get back to real life. Lord, these are words of real life, and they have power to change us because you have promised to show up every time your word is taken seriously. Show up through the power of the Holy Spirit today and change us, we pray. Amen. So, are we healthy? Are we whole? Uh, Verse 3 of the scripture reading that we just read uh, says that if anyone teaches a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's puffed up with conceit. He's, He's on a bad path that leads to destruction. The word translated sound there also could be translated healthy. You know, if if I am of sound mind and sound body, that's an older way of saying in English that my mind is healthy, my body is healthy. Um, and, And so this Scripture text is about how to be what we all want to be right now in the middle of a pandemic, right? We're all asking this question, am I healthy? Am I whole? Do I have a virus? If I do, am I at special risk because I have some extra factor that I need to be concerned for? Can I get tested so that I will know whether I'm healthy and whole? Those are the questions we're asking because, well, we want to be healthy. We want to be whole. That's the same kind of question that the Apostle Paul is raising again and again throughout these six chapters of a letter that he wrote to Timothy. We call it the book of 1 Timothy. There's a second one, and um, that's the theme. Today what I want us to do is to get to the heartbeat of this book and what it means to be healthy and whole. To to get there, we have to start somewhere else. Let's take a few minutes to talk about the context of this book of Scripture, and then we'll work our way to the heartbeat of 1 Timothy. And thinking about context, let's first put this in the context of, of where does 1 Timothy sit in the Bible and in the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. So if you were to look at a list in, in the sort of table of contents of a Bible, you would see the New Testament, you find the Gospels, four books, and then the book of Acts, and then you find the letters of the Apostle Paul, and they're, in, they're listed in this order. Typically, they're listed uh, by length. So Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians are longest, Titus and Philemon are the shortest. This is not the uh, sequence in which they were written historically. They're just arranged in uh, kind of this sort of length slash weight. Um, and, and so we've covered in our sermon series, Learning to Love God's Word, Romans uh, all the way down through First uh, and Second Thessalonians. So we're starting now with First and Second Timothy and Titus and then Philemon. So, as those were written in Paul's ministry, uh, he's converted around the year 33 AD, and then he spends uh, a long time traveling through areas that today, western Turkey, eastern Turkey, Greece, and uh, several long journeys, planting churches, strengthening churches that uh, 
have, have already existed for a while. He's spreading this good news about Jesus everywhere he goes. In that process of, of uh, several years, he writes several of these letters to churches that he can't be with in person. The books we know as Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians. So those are the written in this kind of earliest phase of Paul's ministry. The last one of those to be written is the book of Romans. And in that book, he says, hey, church over here in Rome, I haven't been able to come to you yet. I've been working in kind of the eastern Mediterranean basin. I'm wanting now to shift my ministry westward, and eventually I hope to go to Spain. In Romans chapter 15, the next to last chapter of the book, he walks through that. He says, I'm hoping you can send me on, and Rome will become my new home base for spreading the gospel to new places and new people, all the way even as far westward as Spain. That doesn't happen immediately, though, because Paul makes one more visit to Jerusalem, and he gets arrested. He's arrested. He spends a couple of years in prison in uh, Palestine, and then he's shifted to Rome. And while he's in Rome, in prison, he writes several more letters. These are collectively known as the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then the one at the very end in our Bibles, Philemon. He writes all of those during this imprisonment. And now there's a bit of debate here about where these next letters fit in sequentially. Were these written earlier in Paul's ministry or later? I'm convinced it was later, and that Paul was released from that imprisonment in Rome, and he did get to travel to Spain. There are several uh, early church resources that tell us that. And on his way back after his ministry in Spain, he's now handing the baton off to the next generation of leaders, one of whom is Timothy, and another of whom is Titus. And so he writes letters to these next generation leaders after he's returning from Spain, First and Second Timothy, Titus. We often call them the pastoral epistles. Why? Because they're written to young pastors. And uh, so, so that's where these letters kind of fit in the framework of Paul's ministry. But we just hinted at something even more important, the generational context. Paul is an apostle. He's an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. He is a first-generation leader. He is getting ready to hand the baton to the next generation of leaders. And so he starts to write a new kind of letter he's not ever written before. Some scholars call it a mandate letter. It's, have you ever had this experience where uh, you go out to the mailbox, you, you grab something, and you, you open it up, and you start to read it, and then a family member, a roommate, a pesky friend, a nosy neighbor starts to stick their head over your shoulder? And this letter that you, you would say is intended for you is also being read by them. Now, usually when that happens, we don't like it. You know, back off. Give me my space. This is my letter. Personal. It's private. It's just for me. Now, sometimes we can think that the, um, that, that the pastoral epistles are like that. Hey, they're written to the next generation of church leaders. They're, they're only for Timothy. They're only for Titus. These are pastoral epistles. They're only for pastors or elders or missionaries, full-time Christian people. They're not for the rest of us, right? 
wrong. These are what are known as mandate letters. At least 1 Timothy and Titus are. They're intended, they're addressed to one leader, but they're intended for the whole church to be leaning in and reading over the shoulder of Timothy and Titus. Everybody who's part of the Christian community is supposed to lean in and read this. And the older leader, the mentor, in this case the Apostle Paul, is saying, Timothy, this is how I want you to lead. And he's also saying, church, when Timothy leads you like this, follow. So these aren't private. They aren't intended just for individuals. There are no letters like that in the whole New Testament. Even letters addressed to individuals are for the whole church. And in this case, these mandate letter form, a new kind of letter. Paul's not written one of these before. They're written so that the whole church leans in. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, Timothy, everywhere I've gone since the very beginning of my ministry, false teaching has hounded me and the churches I've started. The kind of teaching that makes you unhealthy that disintegrates you and divides you and and causes you to fracture and become a person who's trying to follow Jesus and follow some other idolatrous God at the same time. And that will never work. So Timothy, it's going to be a long, hard fight to keep the church healthy and whole. Church, when Timothy leads you toward health and wholeness, follow, follow him. Now, Quick note, quick side note. There are people who would ask the question, but did Paul really, really write these letters? First and Second Timothy, Titus. Uh, many contemporary scholars would say, no, Paul didn't write these. I know they all say they're written by Paul, but, but Paul didn't write them. Um, I, I think that conclusion is wrong. One of the common arguments has to do with vocabulary, that uh, if you compare the word, the kind of vocabulary that Paul uses in his other ten letters and the vocabulary of these three letters, you find, uh, you know, they're, they're not the same word sets. That uh, there are 300 or so words used in First, Second Timothy, Titus that never show up in any of the other letters of Paul. And um, actually a hometown scholar here, a, a guy named Luke Timothy Johnson, he's a professor at Candler, a school of theology at Emory University. He is uh, one contemporary scholar who is saying, wait a minute, that's no kind of argument. And, and uh, he is one of the uh, better known scholars who's saying, no, look, th- there's no reason to doubt that the Apostle Paul wrote these letters. So one of the questions that we'd ask is, um, hey, If you're addressing new circumstances and uh, if you're writing a new kind of letter that you've not written before, this mandate letter form, if you're doing this um, over 20 years after you wrote your first letter to a church, if you're a pretty well-educated person and if part of your education in the Greco-Roman world was learning to write in a different, a wide variety of styles and voices, isn't it possible that your vocabulary could grow over that 20-year span? And if your vocabulary in these 10 letters is of roughly 2,200 words, and now suddenly we have to expand that to 2,500 words, is that reasonable? Average adult English speaker has a vocabulary, working vocabulary of 20,000 words. And uh, 
adds roughly one word a day to that vocabulary. So you'll sometimes hear that argument advanced, and, and it's kind of advanced like this. We know Paul didn't write these letters. Here's one of the ways we know it. There are a whole lot of assumptions in that kind of assertion. So if we had more time, it'd be fun to talk through some of those details. I just want to say to us that uh, just, because, just because a scholar asserts that it is so, that doesn't make it so. Um, we have to ask what kind of assumptions are, are built in to some of those uh, conclusions. So, Apostle Paul, new set of circumstances, handing a baton to a new generation of leader and saying it's going to be a long, hard fight to keep the church healthy and whole. And that's the heartbeat of this letter, 1 Timothy. If I had to capture it in one sentence, it's this. When we know God through the gospel, the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. When we know God through that good news about Jesus, then, then we want to be healthy and whole. Knowing God makes us desire to be healthy and whole. Again, back to verse 3 of our scripture reading, which refers to sound words, healthy words, words that lead to health and wholeness. And what are those words about? Sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you hear the good news about Jesus and what he has done, to redeem us and to bring redemption to our world, then you want more soundness, more wholeness. Jesus brings us into a kind of relationship with God that the Bible describes as knowing Him. Not simply knowing about Him, but knowing Him. And when we come to that kind of relationship with God... It changes our desires, and we want to be healthy and whole. What does that lead to, according to these words from 1 Timothy? First, it, it means that we now want to be inclusive and exclusive at the same time. When we're healthy and whole, spiritually, we want both of these. We want to be inclusive and exclusive. Let me show you what I mean. Let's draw our attention to the word godliness in this scripture text. There's roughly 10 verses, and the word godliness occurs four times in those 10 verses. Hey, that's like this neon light going, wah, wah, wah. pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. Repetition means emphasis. There's something really important here about this concept, this word godliness, what does it mean? It means a combination of appropriate belief and devout practice. And uh, so in, in the ancient world, this was a common word used to describe the relationship to any supernatural being. So as Christians, we might hear the word godliness, and we would say, well, godliness has to do with appropriate belief about the one true God, who reveals himself in Scripture and through Jesus, and devout practice of honoring that God in the way that we live. Yes, absolutely, but if you lived in the Roman Empire, you wouldn't have attached godliness to any particular God. You would have said godliness is something everyone should have, no matter what God or gods or goddesses they believe in. 
If, if you believe there's a supernatural being in power, then you ought to hold appropriate beliefs about them, and you ought to devoutly practice what they require of you. This is a good thing. It is highly prized in ancient Greek and Roman culture. This is a word lifted from Greek religious conversation, Greek philosophy. And so what you hear in, in the way that the, the book of 1 Timothy, here's a word that's used 15 times in the whole New Testament. Eight of those are in this one letter. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, hey, Timothy, this good news about Jesus, it affirms that this virtue that is prized so highly in our culture is good. Timothy, the gospel is going to make you healthy and whole in such a way that you will affirm what is good in the place that God has put you. You will learn to speak the language of your culture. Timothy, it is okay to use the same vocabulary that non-Christians use to talk about good things. And it is okay for you as a Christian pastor, Timothy, to say to your neighbors who love Diana, Artemis, she was the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus, And godliness was a key word used in her worship, this very same word. Timothy, it is okay for you to use that same language and to say to your neighbors who worship Diana, Artemis, it is okay to say to them, you know what, your desire to be faithful, believing what you ought to believe and practicing what you ought to practice, that is a good desire. The gospel of Jesus Christ affirms that this virtue you prize so highly really is a good thing. And as Christians, we can agree with you. Yes, we want that too. This gospel is inclusive. But the gospel is also exclusive. Hey, Timothy, the gospel says that if you really want godliness, you will get it through Jesus. Not through Diana, not through Artemis, not through Zeus or Hermes or any of the other gods and goddesses of your culture. This thing that is wanted by so many of our neighbors is good and right, but it comes through Jesus. So the gospel is simultaneously inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive. It says, let's look for as much common ground as we can with our neighbors. Let's affirm a value that is prized by the culture that we live in. Where we can, let's, let's do that. Where, where, we, where we can, let's, let's, let's use the same vocabulary. Let's learn the language of the place God has planted us. And let's affirm that... Christians aren't the only ones who want good things. Our neighbors want truth, most of them, even if they aren't Christians, even if they are atheists, they want truth. That's good. We can say that. It's okay to say that. Our neighbors want justice. Can we say that? Yeah, we should say that. That's good. That's good. Let's learn the language 
What if that language is language that makes some of us uncomfortable? Some of us don't like the phrase social justice. Some of us love it. Well, that's, the, that's not the language of the church. Actually, what part of the church are you talking about? Because it kind of is the language of many churches over centuries. may not be the language of your church, your church background, but even if it's not the language of the church, it is okay for us to go into the marketplace, into our culture, and learn the language and affirm as much as we can. At the same time, the gospel is going to say, we have to also affirm this, that good thing that you want, it's so good that you want it. I'm so glad you want truth. I'm so glad you want justice. I'm so glad you want godliness. But here's the thing. Jesus is the only one who can give us those things we want. Jesus is the only thing that can answer the deepest desires, the best desires of any culture. He is the Lord, Jesus Christ, verse 3 says. And that word Lord signals, in the New Testament, universal. Jesus is not just the Lord over one group of people. He's not just the Lord over one little spot of territory. He is the Lord over everything and everywhere and everyone. And so Christians, we we put these two things together, the inclusivity, learning the language of our culture, the exclusivity, saying The deepest desires of that culture can only be met and satisfied and answered through Jesus Christ. Notice how the common ideologies of our day don't do that. They ask us to choose. Conservative ideology tends to be very exclusive. This is the right way. Moralism tends to be very exclusive. You must do these things to please this God. This is the right way. Conservative and moralistic views tend to be very narrow. Progressive, humanistic views tend to be very broad. Let's affirm as much as we can. Let's be very inclusive. And so the ideologies of our day are going are to pull us to separate these two and say we have to choose. Either you can be religiously right and very exclusive, And don't affirm anything at all about your culture, because if you do, that's compromise. Don't even learn its language. Use the holy language, the language of the Bible, the language of Zion, whatever, you know, traditional language. And then you've got progressive voices that are going to tell you just the opposite. Let's affirm as much as we can. We love our culture. We want to affirm every culture. We want to affirm everybody. We want to include everyone. Don't ever say that there's only one way to get those deepest longings satisfied. Progressive voices are going to tell you to be very inclusive, and they're going to be really allergic and hostile toward Anything that sounds like an exclusive devotion to Jesus, the gospel puts those two together and says, everybody is wrong. (laughs) If they're trying to ask you to choose between one or the other, the gospel holds both of them together. Hey, Timothy, speak the language of your culture. Talk a lot about godliness. 
talk a lot about growing in a way that you believe what is right and practice what is true. Do that a lot. Speak the language of your culture. Timothy, affirm what you can about the things that your neighbors believe and treasure and long for. And Timothy, always point them back to Jesus Christ. And church, while you're leaning over Timothy's shoulder, reading this letter, church, you better be ready to get stretched outside your comfort zone. Because some of you are really, really engaged in culture. And you're not going to like it very much when Timothy starts to say, actually, only Jesus. Actually, at some point, we've got to come back to Jesus. He is the only way that those deepest longings of our hearts can be satisfied. And you're not going to like it because you're really kind of very progressive. And that's going to rub you the wrong way. And some of you leaning in, reading over Timothy's shoulder, you're very conservative. You, You really don't like engaging with the culture. You'd rather stay kind of in this little safe bubble and... um you know, just tradition, don't change anything. And when, when Timothy comes to you starting to learn the vocabulary of non-Christians and that vocabulary starts to show up in his sermons and he starts to act like his mentor, the Apostle Paul, sprinkling liberally this pagan religious vocabulary into his instructions to the next generation of leader, you're not going to like it. It's going to stretch you in a way that makes you uncomfortable. Tim, Paul is saying, Timothy, you've got to lead like this. In church, you've got to be ready to be stretched and made uncomfortable by this gospel that holds together things that the world says can't be held together. And if that is happening, if the whole church is constantly being, being made uncomfortable by this gospel that seems to be simultaneously way broader and way narrower way more inclusive than we're comfortable with and way more exclusive than we're comfortable with if if we're constantly being stretched like that that is a sign that the gospel is making us healthy and whole i think we have time to talk about another sign that we're being made healthy and whole If we're coming to know God through this good news about Jesus, it's going to make us want to be healthy and whole. These sound words, these healthy words about the Lord Jesus Christ are going to change us, and we're going to embrace both content and consequences. We've hinted that this combination already in the way we define godliness. Godliness combines appropriate belief with devout practice. Well, the same thing is true of this language used in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that is consistent with godliness, verse 2 said, Timothy, teach and urge these things. When we hear that language about teaching and doctrine, we may not recognize that, like the word godliness, it's about a combination of two things. Content, what we believe, and consequences, how we live it out. 
the consequences of that content for the way we actually live. You see, in English, most of us have been taught to think that the words doctrine and teaching have to do only with content. When you hear the word teaching, when you hear the word doctrine, you probably think, oh, that's about what we believe. Teaching about, is about information. A teacher conveys information in our culture, in our society. Here's a test. Here's how I know that. You have known parents. Maybe you've been this parent. You know, your freshman kid comes back from a um, class on sociology and, and, and is talking a lot about Marxism, and you start to get nervous. <sighs> or, or, or comes back from that sociology class and is talking about um, masculinity and femininity in ways that sound really, I've never, what? I'm trying to catch up with this conversation, but, but hey, wait a minute. I didn't pay this person to be teaching you their view of the world. Teachers are just supposed to convey information. They're not really supposed to change your outlook on the whole world. Just teach. We believe that teaching is just conveying information. That's the way we tend to use that vocabulary. A teacher conveys information. If you want your life changed, you go to a coach, you go to uh, a mentor, you go to a discipler, a counselor. Doctrine is one thing, application is another thing. We put these in two totally different categories, but the New Testament doesn't. In the New Testament, words like godliness and teaching and doctrine encompass both content and consequences, what we believe and how we live. True information about who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us, true beliefs about who God is and what he is like, and application. The word doctrine means both of those in the Bible. So please don't walk away from this going, yeah, yeah, but, but doctrine really means what we believe. Almost every conservative Christian resource you read will talk that way. Really well-known study Bible, got a section on doctrine and ethics, right? Because ethics is how we live, and doctrine is what we believe. No, if, if we were using that vocabulary the same way that the Bible does, then we would say, here's doctrine of belief and doctrine of practice. The word doctrine covers both. The word teaching covers both. Why does that matter for us? Well, it helps us know why, why in this little letter to Timothy, Paul can move so quickly from talking about doctrine and teaching in verse 3 to the things he talks about in verses 4 through 10. Craving for controversy and quarrels that leads to constant friction, verses 4 and 5. Wait a minute, that's not doctrinal. That's character. You know, pe people who sow argumentation and division everywhere they go, their doctrine might be right, but something's wrong with their character. Well, the New Testament would say their doctrine is wrong. How do I know their doctrine is wrong? By asking them questions about the Trinity? 
I know their doctrine is wrong by seeing that everywhere they go, people fight more. You may be able to write a book about the Trinity and say nothing untrue about it. But if constant friction follows you everywhere you go, your doctrine is bad. Your first instinct is going to be, no, that's not a doctrinal problem. Listen to the Scriptures, right? How do I know if this person is teaching different doctrine that doesn't agree with the healthy, sound words of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? How do I know if someone's teaching isn't consistent with godliness? Well, ask if he's puffed up with conceit. Ask if that person's arrogant. Well, that doesn't tell me anything about their doctrine. Yes, it does. You cannot believe truth about Jesus and remain unchanged. You can't believe that Jesus humbled himself for us and remain an arrogant person. The text goes on to talk about contentment and gain and money. And, and, and the desire to be rich and, and the love of money in verse 10, well, those aren't doctrinal issues. Yes, they are. No, those, those are application issues. Application is doctrine. If you love loving money, and that's what the text is really talking about, verse 9 says, those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation. Actually, The sentence says, those who desire the love of money will fall into temptation. Desiring the desire for more will destroy us. And that is a doctrinal issue. Here's why that matters to you and to me. Again, common approaches and ideologies divide these two. If you're on the conservative side of the spectrum as as a Christian or or a non-Christian who has a more conservative view of spirituality and religion, you're going to tend to emphasize content over consequences. A really conservative person will say this and not feel the tension. They will say, I believe the Bible. And they might say it in a very angry and unloving way, and they don't feel the tension. My doctrine is right. I believe the Bible. And it's okay if I hold that solid, sound, healthy doctrine in this very unhealthy, arrogant way. And the gospel is going to change us so that we say, yes, I believe the Bible. Because the Lord Jesus believed the Old Testament scriptures and he gave the New Testament scriptures to us. I believe them because they are healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe them, but I want to say that in a way that's loving. I want to say that in a way that doesn't frighten my neighbors away from me. I want to say that in a way that doesn't lead to constant friction. I believe the Bible. If you're really conservative, you're the kind of person who, um, this can happen to you, it's happened to me, I struggle with this myself. Saying I believe the Bible matters way more than living a life of generosity, trusting God to meet my needs, contentment. Well, I got my doctrine right. I'll work on contentment later. 
believing the Bible is essential, how I deal with money, well, that's an optional extra for the super Christian. No, it's not. No, it's not. Progressive Christians tend to do just the opposite. They emphasize consequences over content. As long as we're loving and generous and doing good deeds, it doesn't really matter what we believe. So let's be loving and affirming of as many people as we can. And, well, we don't have to take the Bible that seriously. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel doesn't let us choose. The gospel says to us, the consequences I want to produce in your life are so radical that they can only come from content that's healthy and whole and built on Jesus. And when we learn what Scripture says to us about Jesus, we see how far God will go to eliminate friction between us and Him. And we become the kind of people who, because we embrace that content about Jesus, one of the consequences in our life is that we don't want constant friction following us everywhere. We want healthy, loving relationships. And when we learn the gospel story about Jesus, we see how far God will go how far he will stoop to be generous toward people who are in absolute poverty and need. And one of the consequences of that gospel belief, that content, is that we we want to be generous to people who are desperately needy. And we can trust God to take care of us. And we don't have to keep accumulating. We can start giving, we can start asking, Lord, is 2021 the year that I raise the percentage of my charitable giving by 5%? Is is this the year that 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 new source of income that I wasn't expecting, I just give 100% of that away to other people? We can start to ask that kind of question. We can start to think that way. Why? Because, well, because we're learning the gospel does this kind of work. Timothy, teach this doctrine. Teach gospel-saturated content married to gospel-saturated consequences. Fight for both. Don't let either one go. Don't listen to the conservatives, Timothy, that are telling you you can let go of your Bible as long as you have justice. That's the progressives telling you that, right? Don't listen to the conservatives, telling you you can let go of justice as long as you got your Bible. They're both wrong, Timothy. Because when we get good, sound, healthy doctrine about our Lord Jesus Christ, here is what happens to us. It changes us. It makes us want wholeness. We don't want these things to be separated from one another. We want to be whole. We want to believe what is true about Jesus. What he's, we want to believe every word that he speaks to us from the Old Testament, from the New. Everything about him, we want more and more of it. But we want it to pour out of us and to show up in the way that we treat our neighbors, in the way that we think about wealth, in the way that we share and give, in the way that we try to heal when our controversies have stirred up envy and suspicion. We want to be healthy and whole. Well, good advice about being healthy. 
if you have symptoms that might be related to COVID-19, you should go get a test. Right? Go find out. Go find out if you're healthy. Go find out if you're on a path to wholeness. What that test will tell you, though, is whether you are currently sick with this one virus. It won't tell you whether you're going to get more healthy over time. Right? It's not that kind of test. And it won't tell you whether you want to be healthy. Getting that test will not make you want to be healthier. It will only tell you if you have one particular kind of sickness. The gospel is a different kind of test. Truth about Jesus. When, when you... Okay, graphic image here, right? When the gospel swab is inserted up your nose, it makes you want to be healthier than you were before. Encountering this actually changes you. Can you imagine going to get the COVID test and coming out going, you know what? I think I need to eat fewer carbs and more proteins. It has nothing to do with COVID, but, but suddenly I want to eat healthier. Or suddenly I want to stop running because that's actually making me less healthy and making my injuries flare up more, and I want to do more walking. And I want that because I want to be more healthy. COVID tests won't make you want to be healthier. You have to already want health before you go get the test, right? It can't give you that. The gospel can give you that. When you see how far Jesus is willing to go to give you health and wholeness, it makes you want to be healthier. It makes you want to be more whole. It's the only thing that can not only tell you what health looks like, but give you greater desire for that very health. Let's ask the Lord Jesus to do that for us. Lord, some of us are not whole. Well, the truth is none of us are whole. Each of us tends to go to one extreme or the other. I love content. I love the Bible. I love truth. Or I love justice. I love kindness and compassion. And I'm willing to compromise on the Bible. But, but you, Jesus, you won't let us do it. I love to be inclusive. I love to affirm my culture wherever I can. Or I love to be exclusive. And I love to talk about the claims of Christ as much as I can. But you don't let us do that. You want to make us whole people. Teach us to be more whole in the coming year than we have been in the year that just passed. You are the only one who can do it, Lord Jesus. We pray this for the glory of your name, for our good and the good of our neighbors. Amen.